Code yellow, someone screamed. I dipped in and out of consciousness, in and out of panic. 18 years as a nurse myself, and I knew one thing for sure. It was a burst ectopic. The fetus was not viable. I had lost a lot of blood. I could die. As I contemplated the possibility of never waking up after surgery, my nurse leaned in close, took my hand and said, it's okay. I'm here and you're gonna be okay. Nurse, it's such an evocative word, both a noun and a verb. It is something we nurses live every day, a healing action of courageous care that we offer to our patients from the depth of our humanity. When I woke up from surgery, the years of work, a really difficult grieving and personal reckoning that followed helped me learn a simple lesson. You can't pour from an empty cup. That was Tara Reinders, a registered nurse, dancer, and founder of The Clinic, which is an art-based workshop series in immersive theater performance. She was reading from her recent first opinion essay on using dance to help nurses and other healthcare workers express their trauma. I'll bring you our conversation after a quick break. I'm Jesse McWhorters, branded content editor for STAT. Recognizing the breadth and diversity of America's 53 million family caregivers, how can we better know and see these important unsung heroes? Lisa Wilson, Head of Caregiver Advancement Strategy and Experience at United Healthcare, offers insights. Family caregivers are a cornerstone of our health system, but it can be challenging to support them in the moments that matter. United Healthcare is breaking down the barriers to identifying and engaging caregivers. For example, we're making it easy for caregivers to establish necessary HIPAA permissions and encouraging self-identification. The more we know about this population, the more we see them, especially early on in their caregiving journey, the better support we can provide. For more information, visit uhc.com caregiving. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Tara, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Tori. Thanks for having me. Well, there is a very long list of questions that I would like to ask you about nursing, about your personal experiences. But I think I'd like to start by asking, um, how long have you been dancing? Mm, I love that question. Um, I've been dancing ever since I can remember. It was always um, something that I loved to do as a child. I remember putting on performances in my backyard with my best friends at a very young age. And dance really quickly became a space of uh, safety for me and, and a space of healing. And it's it gave me an, a, a way to process as a child um, that I couldn't do verbally. So what sorts of things would you you know, dance out as a child, you know, long before you had a, a career um, that gave you a lot of things to try to dance through? You know, I remember um, being really little and I had um, a babysitter. Her name was Joyce Chittick, who's now, um, who's done a lot of work on Broadway and uh, 
and just she was in, <laughs> she graduated early from cat uh, from high school to be um, to tour with cats and she's just this an incredible dancer and incredible human and she really is the one that brought dance into my life and um, she did this by inviting me to audition for a local um, production of The Music Man and I was really young um, probably like in maybe second grade and so I was cast as one of uh, the children <laughs> and so I would just dance around and, and during the song. And, and, and then I started taking classes formally and it was when I was taking classes that I realized like, wow, I had a lot of like, I didn't have the language for this then, but there was a lot happening at home a lot. Uh, my parents have been married and divorced to each other three times. So there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of uh, craziness that was happening. And I think um, what what it was, it was a way, a, a safe place away from home. And now we have a language, right? Somatic processing that we're able to do when we move our bodies, we move through the trauma, we move through the grief, and we also embody our joy. And so um, that's really what I found at a young age was this, this place to, um, to, to just feel better after, you know, coming from like my parents fighting and, uh, you know, all the things that were happening to just a place that I could feel better by moving all of that through my body. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, and at what point did you become a nurse? How long have you been a nurse now? I've been a nurse, um, a registered nurse for over 20 years, but I was a, a certified nursing assistant before that for about five years. So I've been in nursing for over 25 years. Oh, my gosh. Um, you don't look like you've been in nursing for 25 years, I'll <laughs> just say for anyone who's listening. Um at what point did you start to kind of meld these worlds of dance and nursing? For me, it always really melded together. And I, again, didn't necessarily um, have the language, but I can say that when my sister got sick, um, so my sister, who was 26 at the time, um, went from being a completely healthy, normal 26-year-old, like could move all her, her body. She was a mother to an eight-year-old. Um, she went into a coma within 12 hours. She called me and she said, Tara, something's not right. And she lived in a different state. And so um, I was like, what's going on? She's like, my body's shaking. I have a really bad headache. I said, I don't, this is crazy. What? Go to the ER. I'm not sure what's going on. Call me and let me know what happens. And I didn't hear from her for a couple hours. And so I called her and she couldn't speak and she could only moan into the phone. It was like a demyelination um, of her brain, the sheaths around her brain. And so she, um, acute disseminating encephalomyelitis is the actual term for it, but it's like a demyelination that happens. And um, so within 12 hours, she was in a coma and I spent, I, I quit, I was in the middle of grad school getting my master's in dance actually. And I um, put a pause on that and moved in with her into her rehab room. And that experience was really um, life-changing, like being her advocate, not just as a nurse, but also as her sister and watching her go through some of the most traumatic things I've ever seen. I mean, if you can imagine someone just, you know, not being going from a healthy body to not being able to move or speak within 12 hours, it's a, it's a huge loss really quickly. And to watch her unravel all of those things, the grief, the disbelief, the denial, the, the anger. Um, and she didn't, and she couldn't speak. So she didn't have the words for it. And so I was with her and in many ways it felt like it was happening to me because I was trying, I was like inadvertently being her voice, being the one to, to also bathe her and try to help feed her. And, um, but at nighttime, we would, I would turn on her favorite song, which was Hannah Montana party in the USA. Um, and we would, I would dance in her room 
and I would just dance around and she would just laugh and laugh. So she couldn't speak, but she could moan and she could laugh. And her laughs came like, there was some weird process that couldn't happen why she couldn't speak with like the way she could only breathe in. So when she would laugh, it would be like just from her belly. And sometimes you couldn't tell if they were laugh or cries. Um, and so I would do that every night. And after that experience, um, and there's so much, so I could, I could keep telling you more that that time was really, um, it was a looking back, it was a time of holding the joy and also the grief simultaneously, the days of grief, the days of anger, and then the nights where we would just try to um, let it all go through dance. And I remember thinking, you know, moving my body so much thinking maybe if I find freedom in my body, somehow will she be able to experience what I'm experiencing by proximity, because we're sisters, because we're in space together, whatever it may be, that was my hope. Um, and so after that, um, we moved her closer to where I lived in Colorado to Craig Hospital, where they do incredible work for um, non-traumatic brain injuries and traumatic brain injuries. And um, I, I, would, I had to do my thesis for school because I was, get, like I said, getting my master's in dance. And that's when I, I couldn't just create a performance on stage. And so I, I took that experience and created a two-hour durational performance called You and Me that brought dance and my nursing and being a patient's family member and being a patient all together. And it was an interactive, immersive performance that involved one-on-one um, -on -one, um, interactive experiences with, with our participants that really focused on the themes of intimacy and belonging with one another and community. And, um, and, and really, I didn't add the words then either as I'm learning so much new language now, but like compassion for ourselves and for each other. That sounds really beautiful. And did you go right back to nursing um, after you finished your master's? I did. Mm -hmm. I did. It was, um, I did it, you know, part-time. I, I, I started full-time when I went to get my master's in dance and I went part-time and um, then I ended up uh, going back full-time, but still was doing this work of combining them together, creating performances. And we toured you and me in Europe and other places. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it's, I've always held both of those worlds really, really closely. Yeah. And I want to know now a little bit about what your nursing world was like then. So what sort of nursing were you doing? Are you doing? And at what point did you start to think maybe there's a way to really sort of bring this dance that I'm learning about and, and the power of somatic expression um, to my colleagues? Yeah, so I was working, I worked in the ER for most of my career, um, which I loved. And um, I, the reason why I love ER nursing so much is because I, I love being with people in some of their most, most difficult times. And it's, um, it's really a gift. And I feel it find it very sacred to sit with another person who's suffering and to be able to offer presence and medication, any, all of the things, but mostly what I found was like the greatest gift I could give as their nurse was just being with them, sitting and being with them um, and listening and um, acknowledging the pain that they were going through. I knew all of that and I'd always danced, but it wasn't until I had an ectopic pregnancy myself um, when I was, when I really brought these two worlds together. And um, as I shared earlier, I, I just, I remember having all of this pain. I had twins six months earlier. Um, so I had twins at home who were six months and then I found out I was pregnant. Um, and then that same evening, I started having really intense pain in my stomach and on my right side. And I was like, I'm having an ectopic pregnancy. And I, I, I told my partner, I'm going to, 
I'm, I need to go to the hospital. And so I wasn't going to wake up my twins and bring the whole family along. So I drove myself to the hospital and it was re- this really interesting experience to be a nurse and, and to be, and now to be a patient for the first time in, in, in such a, like a emergency type setting and to also be an ER nurse. So all the things that were happening, I was kind of, it was kind of like a bird's eye view. I was flying above it, watching everyone and knowing the process so well, um, the look on their faces, like trying to figure out if I was there for drugs if I was really in pain and, you know, all the things that I had done, like the judgments that we bring to the table every day. And so um, I, I remember my physician sitting down at my level and talking to me and feeling really comforted by that. I remember um, passing out when they called the the code yellow, which is, you know, what they call before a code blue when your heart stops and you're headed in that direction, but you need extra help. And um, I was put in Trendelenburg where my head's where my feet are up high and my head's low to get all the blood rushed to all my organs, my room filled with people. And um, it was in that moment that my nurse grabbed my hand and she said, I'm here and you're going to be okay. And I remember, um, you know, I've told this story a lot and I, I'm starting now to tell this part that I I realize is maybe the most important part of the story and in, in that I didn't realize at the time. But when she first grabbed my hand, I I remember like pulling back from her and and thinking, I'm good. I got this. Even though like I knew this wasn't good. I knew the outcome of this, what it could be. But I still was like, no, I, I, I'm okay. Like, I don't need you to care for me right now. Um, and I, and then I remember thinking, Tara, like you could be dying. Like your babies who are six months old may never see you again. You may never see your partner again. Like let this woman care for you. It's okay. And all of this happens within like seconds in my mind. And so then I just remember softening and like grabbing her hand back as she held mine. And I think that moment's really important because I think it's really hard to receive care from others, especially for healthcare providers. It was after that that I was, I, I just felt so seen. I felt seen as a patient and I felt cared for. And um, I really wanted to create spaces for others to feel that way in healthcare. And dance was the way that I, I created spaces of healing. So it made sense for me to combine those two worlds together. That's so beautiful. You know, and while you were talking about that, I just kept thinking or wondering, I suppose, do you think it's harder to accept care as a medical professional, as someone who's so often giving it? Is it, you know, you sort of condition yourself to just say, no, I'm fine and focus on others? Absolutely. 100%. It's, and I think it's a, it's a very rich conversation. And um, I think so much of my identity, and I wonder if others can relate, is wrapped up in um, how much I care and how much I sacrifice and the accolades that we get and um, for doing that and being a woman as well. And, um, you know, especially during COVID, being called a healthcare hero, how detrimental that was to um, to us. And so I, I talk about like, let's go from healthcare heroes to healthcare humans. Like our humanity is the biggest gift we give. And um, when you, and that really stripped us of our humanity. Yeah, and, you know, it, it occurs to me also, it, it's offering that kind of care is is so beautiful and also just so much, right? You know, you you can understand, but I, I want to hear more from you on this, you know, why people like me want to call you heroes, but I also understand why that phrase kind of grates at you. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, yeah. I thought about this a lot because the intention's good, right? The the intention is to to praise and honor, and um, in it, I think healthcare heroes gives people just like, oh, you're a hero. Like when I tell, would tell people I'm a nurse, I I did hospice for a year as well, and they're like, oh, you're an angel. I could never do that. And it's almost like it sets us apart as this, as if we have these skill sets and these like tools, like these capes and like we can shoot webs out of our hands or all these things <laughs> that superheroes can do, but we don't. We just are making that choice to sacrifice in these different ways to do this. And yes, you know, some of us have this more innate desire to, to nurture and to care. Um, yet it's something that everyone can learn and, and can do. And so, um, and so it really, and it felt good. I have to say it just, it felt good to be acknowledged that way during COVID at first. And, um, and then it's like, I also wanted spaces that I could cry in, that I could get angry in. And when someone's calling you a hero, you're like, oh, but I'm a hero. Like heroes don't cry. They're not angry. They, they save people. And so it was like, in many ways, felt like a big trick to keep us in our lane, to, to keep us from, from venturing out of like, hey, this isn't okay that we don't have enough PPE to do our jobs. You know, it's 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 not okay that I'm putting my family at risk right now and we're not getting extra pay for this or whatever it may be. You know, all of these things aren't okay. But I'm I guess I it's okay because I'm I'm a hero. And that's what heroes do. They just they sacrifice even more. But you know, as you write about in the piece, your sacrifices began, of course, well before COVID. So the first dance workshop you did happened a couple of years before COVID. Is that right? It is. Yeah. In 2017. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Um, who was there? How did you get people to come? What music did you listen to? I want to know everything. Yeah. Um, so that actually, that workshop came out of my experience with the ectopic pregnancy. And it was, again, this desire for, um, for our patients, it really came out of desire for our patients to feel seen and heard and cared for. And so I remember doing research around that and, uh, and burnout still wasn't even really a word that we were using very much. And wellness was still a little taboo uh, or mental wellness was a little taboo. People were not knowing or not willing to admit that they needed care in that area. And so um, when I was researching, what I found is that our patient outcomes were really directly linked to um, our nursing satisfaction and nursing um, burnout. And how, if our nurses were satisfied and cared for, our patients' outcomes were better. And so that's when I was like, yes, that makes so much sense. We need to be caring for the people who are caring for others. Um, who's caring for them? And so um, that's when I put you know together, I, I, I worked alongside um, a colleague named Dr. Claire Hamor and um, he has a, a PhD in theater and in the uh, applied theater and play. And for me, it was helpful to, again, understand how movement actually is play and how dance and to, to take it away from this, oh, I'm not a dancer. Or I, I don't do that to these very basic ways to move together. And so we would create stories and play with play together. And we use that as a way to dive into some more of these deeper um, issues we were facing as nurses, but didn't know how to unpack it. Didn't know if it was okay to unpack it. Didn't know why we should, how to do it. And so we we started and um, everyone was like this um, 
FBI agent coming in and we like selected them. We were like, you've all been hand selected to be part of this mission to save this tooth um, that's going to save the world. And um, it's the anecdote, which is, which was, you know, interestingly enough related to what would happen in a few years. Um, But, and then everyone got into these characters on their own. And so we helped develop these characters of who they are, where they came from. And it was all make-believe. And yet we weren't pretending. We were being very real and just playing together. And we used dance. So we had the Eye of the Tiger song (laughs) over and over again. And we would get all pumped up. And I would teach a dance. And I would take moves from everybody who attended. And these were nurses that I had worked alongside for years. Um, Friends, colleagues, um, nurses from the ICU. There was even a director from the ICU, from the cath lab, from from med surge, from telemetry, you know, and we were all coming together in hopes hopes to make sense of what we were feeling and experiencing um, because there was, there hadn't been any place to do that yet. And so after that first workshop with the FBI agents and Eye of the Tiger, you know, what happened then? Did you start holding these regularly? You know, we the nurses didn't want to stop meeting, which was really lovely. And we had developed, um, you know, this camaraderie and this closeness with one another. And we we, we heard some really deep um, stories. We, we called them grief stories at the time, and they later emerged into COVID stories. But we shared our grief. And so nurses were sharing the grief and trauma that they'd been holding in their bodies around the loss of a two-year-old who um, she had to give CPR to, but this two-year-old was wearing the same shoes that her two-year-old had at home. And so there's so much of these blurred lines as a nurse of our own personal lives and losses and then the losses of our patients. So that secondary trauma that becomes our primary trauma as well. Um, and so we we shared these stories. So we built this really strong connection because like I said, there's no other place to lay this down. And, um, and so we didn't want to stop meeting. So we kept meeting um, every month and eventually COVID hit. And so we, we had to, we couldn't keep necessarily meeting in the same way. And these were nurses from two different hospitals. And so we started meeting out um, outdoors or um, in the height of COVID, we met on Zoom. And so it was really um, a really collective reminder of collective care versus the self-care. Like we were collectively caring for each other. And, and at the very end of the night, um, was when, I don't know what you all did, um, but in Denver, we howled at eight o'clock. I think there was clapping in some cities or banging pots and pans. Um, we howled. And so we ended on the, in the streets and everyone was howling out their window. And we just stood there with our hands on our hearts. I even howled at the end. It was like this wail of, of grief that came out. Um, but it was a, a really beautiful acknowledgement of everything that was happening and almost a way of saying, thank you for acknowledging us. And we're human. I hadn't heard about the howling in Denver, but I, I think I like that more than the applause, right? There's something, mm-hmm. you know, really um, kind of, as you say, visceral about about getting to howl and as a way to work out all sorts of different kinds of emotions. Yeah. Now, what started as this kind of pilot project for you has grown into this thing called the clinic. So what is the clinic and what do your workshops look like today? So the clinic is an arts and play-based immersive theater company that creates um, performances as well as workshops inside hospital settings and um, and also to other other uh, group like not different nonprofits have reached out to us and our workshops now we're, I'm really excited we just finished um, four workshops with Kaiser Permanente where we um, worked um, and we have two more coming up but we spent doing an all-day workshop with them eight hours um, diving into this work and um, starting. 
you know, welcoming them in. We do this really beautiful invitation into the space together where we um, pour warm water over their hands and there's bubbles shooting at everyone. (laughs) And so they're like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And so it's like disrupting. And I think that's what the play also does. It really disrupts us so that our brains can open and think about things differently and do things differently. And so, um, so we start with this disruption and, and really like this really intentional care. So as we're pouring hot water over them, we're seeing them, we look at them in their eyes and we say, what are you hoping for today? And people just start crying right off the bat. It's like when you're seen by another human, like that's what's so amazing. It's like the, the freest gift, right? That we can give the most healing gift is our presence. Um, and so we create a space of softening for people to come in and we connect together. And then we go into play. Um, this last play, we we took um, our, our, our guests, our, our participants, participants to space. So we all became astronauts and we were looking for this, you know, um, bowl that never got cold because we were so sad that our most favorite meal at the last bite, it got really cold. And, and, um, Dr. Claire Hamore leads this play section with them and does this really beautiful job. And everyone is laughing until they're crying. And we make costumes and we put on like old boxes and we just have paper around and we wrap paper around us. And so you see these really professional nurses now wrapped in like uh, butcher paper and tape and they're all just laughing hysterically and there's this dance off that we do and so it's again part of the softening but then we go into this receiving receiving ourselves as children uh, without judgment everyone comments like I, I I wasn't judging myself and I felt so free and I wasn't judging you and what you were wearing and how you were dancing and um And then we start getting into some of the deeper topics. We go into some of our COVID stories and we use poetry. And then we have a music therapist who does music um, with them and they write their own poems. And um, yeah, it's a really lovely day that we've curated so that we soften and receive together. And then at the end, we're experiencing this healing and joy. You're you're bringing this to so many more people, which is beautiful. As you write in the essay, you know, too often these hospitals, these systems, as you say, um, are offering free pizza or, or something, right? That, you know, the ways that hospitals are currently offering to help deal with burnout, you know, aren't really kind of meeting emotional needs. I imagine there are also kind of more sort of prosaic things you might want hospitals to do. Um, you know, what are some of the other things that you would like to see hospitals do to offer more trauma support to nurses? Yeah, I think when I look at the root causes of of where we're at, I look at staffing ratios, I look at low pay, um, I look at the relationships between providers and nurses and nurses and nursing assistants and nursing assistants and medical assistants. Um, I look at relationships with environmental services and dietary. And so there's a lot of root, um, there's a lot of hierarchy in the healthcare system and there's a lot of racism in the healthcare system. So you have a, a lot of... Um, not a lot of black and people of color represented represented um, in in some of these more leadership roles who are making these decisions. And so I think you're working um, at a place also of white supremacy and um, and urgency. And so there's all of these roots. And um, I look at my route, the one that I can help is being a nurse and knowing that the system from the inside and um, knowing the ways that we can care. And so I think what what I am you know, asking of healthcare systems is to put in place 
things, the arts, which, you know, but all different kinds of trauma response of the 24 hour in place during the day when something happens, we shouldn't have to swallow our tears at work when there's a child that is lost that we, we are part of. We shouldn't have to go to our next patient when something traumatic happens. We need in the moment support. We have that for patients when they lose someone, but um, we don't have that for us necessarily. We aren't, there's not enough staff for me to be like, I need a minute because I'm so worried about my other patients. And so I'm not going to take that. But if I had somebody that I trusted, that I knew was part of the team that could say, hey, I'm going to take these people for you. You know what? Take the rest of the day off. You, you need a, you need some time. Or, hey, you know, we have this person lined up and ready who wants to talk to you. It's a licensed therapist. There, you just go into this room. Do you want to have a conversation with this person right now? Or do you want to set up another time with this person? Let me do all the legwork for you because I know you're grieving and I know you're having a trauma response right now. You're in fight or flight, freeze or fawn, whatever it may be. And you you can't do this. The other thing is asking them, what, what do you really need? And I think that question's great, but it's also really hard because we don't know what we need. Um, and that's a huge part of our workshops is we ask each other, what do you need to feel seen, heard and cared for? And we write it out and we say, why? why we keep asking why until we get to the root of what it is that we need um and so i wonder if um we were asking those questions early on like what do you need to feel cared for as my colleague as maybe um as a director if you're one of the under me as a director what do you need to feel cared for by me as a director here are some things that other people have said here are some opportunities we can offer you um for in the moment so those are just some examples, but I think the more we incorporate the arts and um, movement and create a space of humanity and freedom in our bodies as humans in healthcare systems, so it's not so stiff and um, everybody having to do things right all the time when there's so much shame and blame, um, I think that would be helpful as well. And the arts can and create that. Absolutely. You know, I'd be curious to hear what are some of the things that have come out of workshops that nurses have said, you know what, this is what I need. Because I think that often, as you allude to, when you're in a moment of trauma, it's really difficult to know what you need, right? You know, when my mother died, people just kept saying, let me know if there's anything I can do. And it's like, I don't have it. I don't, I can't come up with a to-do list for you right now. I'm just trying to get through the day. You know, it's sometimes um, putting that, what do you need can be can be a little bit stressful sometimes on people, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, I want to say thank you for sharing about your mother. Yeah. Um, I think it's that. I think it's this idea of when someone shares something dear to their heart, it's really easy to gloss over it. When someone goes through a really big event, it's easy to be like, are you okay? And they're going to be like, yeah, I think I'm I, I'm okay. That's and, and then keep moving. We haven't learned as a society how to um, acknowledge these really big things. Like I'm my mother also passed away. And so that gives me some understanding. But like when you share that, Tori, I hear I hear maybe all the grief that's happened and maybe all the things that you are holding in the loss of your mom and um and I just, I want to like sit with you and hold your hand in that. And I want to, I want to let you cry if you want to cry. I want to let you scream if you want to scream. You know, when, when we're having these, these crazy things happen in the day, it's like, it'd be so awesome to be able to go and just sit with someone and um, maybe not say a word and that's okay. And just sit and maybe just cry silently or let the tears fall or however you want to be you in that moment. But that 
there's no judgment and that it's okay just to do whatever that may be and that the words may come later. Um, but we don't have those places to do that. Now, I think we have to wrap up soon, but I want to ask, what song are you looking forward to dancing to soon? Um, hmm, that's such a difficult question. <laughs> I love so many. I have to say Rested Root, Send Me On My Way. There's, um, when it talks about reaching your hand out, I think to me there's this, um, maybe what we were talking about earlier is like, what does it look like when we're suffering and someone comes and reaches their hand to touch our hand in that suffering and takes it alongside us. So that's the song that I love dancing to that lets me release a lot of my grief that I'm excited about. Well, now I'm going to have to go listen to that song. Uh, Tara Rinders, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. Listeners, I really want to hear from you. Which First Opinion contributors should we have on the podcast, and what topics should the podcast and the column take on? You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please do leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> <laughs>